0: Today, on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
1: What you need to do is you need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. How many of you understand that sinful behavior starts with sinful thoughts? And likewise, obedient thoughts can lead to obedient behavior. The mind is a battleground for the enemy, and he loves to play with your head, and he loves to try to rip you off by putting thoughts in your mind that are wrong thoughts, sometimes sinful thoughts, sometimes just wrong attitudes, sometimes just wrong ideas about God, about people, about life. Your mind
0: is a battlefield. The enemy fights hard for your mind and thoughts. He knows that if he can warp and twist your thoughts, it'll affect your behavior and diminish your faith. But as Pastor Gary will remind you today, you don't fight alone. You have divine power to demolish these strongholds the enemy places in your mind. Paul challenges you to not allow wrong thoughts to stay put in your mind, but to take those thoughts captive back with the incredible power of prayer and the Word of God. This is the path to victory over your worst enemy. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
1: Another thing that he says here in this passage comes from verse 7. That giving is about conviction, not compulsion. It's about conviction. This is a heart issue. And he uses the word compulsion. He says there in verse 7, each man or woman, thats a generic term, should give what he or she has decided in his heart to give. All right, It's a conviction thing. It's a heart thing. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful is the Greek word hilaros. We get our English word hilarious from that word. It, it should be a happy thing. It should be a wonderful thing. It should be a joyful thing. If, if you come to church and you, you drop a check or some cash in the offering and you do it with a frown, you're like, oh, I guess I got to do it. You know? here, oh, here comes that velvet bag again. Oh, brother. You know, please, please don't, don't, don't give because I don't think that honors God. It's, it's all about a heart issue. It should be about conviction. Here's what God has put on my heart to give. And then you be true to that conviction, but don't do it under compulsion. Don't give because you think you must. Give because you think you can. Don't give because you're under coercion or compulsion. Give because, oh, this is, so, oh, God has been so good to me. Oh, this is so wonderful. I have the opportunity to give. It is so so wonderful to know that everything we have comes from the hand of God, and we're just giving back a portion of what belongs to him. So give because it's a matter of the heart. It's a conviction that you feel from the Lord, not under compulsion. Another thing that Paul says here, number three, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but he does mean it, giving will not result in our poverty. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, oh, I can't give because I need it for later? You know, what about my retirement? What about the college tuition? You know, what about this? What about that? Can't give, can't be generous, because I'm going to need it. Listen, he says here between verses 8 and 9, he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Okay, God will take care of our needs. Now, I didn't say he will take care of our greeds. And there's a big difference there. But God will take care of our needs. The Bible says that God will never allow his children to beg for bread. You will not become destitute or impoverished or end up in the poorhouse because you've given too much. I've never met anyone who is homeless because they just gave way too much. No, I mean, there's other reasons and legitimate reasons why people end up in homelessness But I dare say it's not because somebody just gave and gave and gave and gave until they had nothing left. God will supply our needs and he will take care of us and we can trust him as our father. He's the supplier of everything. So giving will not result in our poverty. Don't develop this hoarding mentality that I can't give because I have to save for a rainy day. It's a sunny day today, so give to God. You know, don't worry about the tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. God will take care of us. Be dependent on him and trust him. The other thing that he says here, the fourth thing is, giving not only brings praise to God, but causes others to praise him as well. Look between again, verses 10 and 15. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion And through us, your generosity will result in what? Thanksgiving to God, right? Thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions, he says it again, of thanks to God. Because, verse 13, of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. Do you notice that? So he says here, not only does your generosity result in thanksgiving to God, but it also causes other people to give thanks to God because of your generosity. So it's this twofold from two different directions, praise unto God because of your generosity. So to the degree that you're able, be generous. Uh, Into chapter 10, I just want to hit a little bit of chapter 10 here because this is an important section related to the topic of spiritual warfare, particularly uh, as it relates to our minds. By the way, I just want to end uh, chapter 9 the way he does because I think it's a wonderful closure to the whole topic of giving when he says in verse 15 of chapter 9, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And there's debate about what does Paul mean by the indescribable gift. Is he referring to salvation, or is he referring to Jesus? Yes. <laughs> In other words, he ends the whole topic of giving with the idea that the most generous giver is God. And that he has given us, whether it is salvation or Jesus, because it's both and it's really one and the same through Christ, he's given us the most wonderful expression of salvation through faith in Jesus. So he is the most generous giver, and so he ends the whole topic. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Chapter 10, let's just look at the first five verses. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid, quote, when face to face with you, but bold, quote, went away. I beg you, That when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And then just to finish out the paragraph, but verse 6 doesn't really connect, but he says, And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. The tone of the letter changes here, so much so that some Bible scholars speculate, I don't think it's accurate, but they speculate that chapters 10, 11, 12, uh, and 13 are a separate letter that Paul must have written that got attached to second corinthians at the end here and that the reason why some speculate that is because his tone changes here he gets pretty rough with them at the end Uh, but I, i don't think that that's reason for us to question whether or not this is a separate letter it's just that he's going to conclude with some very direct talk all right and one of the things that he says here at the beginning of chapter 10 is he says he uses the word timid in quotes and bold in quotes because one of the accusations that the corinthian church had against paul was this you're like a dog, Paul, who is far away, and you bark really loudly when you're far away, but when you get up close, you're not fierce at all. So one of the, th- one of the issues that they have with him is when you're face to face with us, you're so timid, but then you go away and you write one of your fancy letters, and oh, you get so bold. All right, so what Paul is saying here is, I know that's what you think about me. You think that only when I'm with you, I'm really timid and I'm just really gentle. And then when I go away, I write a bold letter. I just want you to know, next time I visit you, if I have to be bold, I'm going to kick you in the pants. You're going to be sorry you ever said that. about You want to see bold? You're going to get bold. You want bold? I'll give you bold. And so he's like telling them, you better shape up. Because when I come back and see you, I hope I don't have to kick somebody around. I hope I don't have to do that. The tone changes here. All right. Now, one of the things that he's going to address, though... Is this concept of what happens in the mind? Because one of the things he's saying to them is, you're having these thoughts, you're thinking these things about me. And he says, you wanna know why? Because you have wrong thoughts. And what you need to do is you need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. How many of you understand that sinful behavior starts with sinful thoughts? And likewise, obedient thoughts can lead to obedient behavior. The mind is a battleground for the enemy. And he loves to play with your head. And he loves to try to rip you off by putting thoughts in your mind that are wrong thoughts, sometimes sinful thoughts, sometimes just wrong attitudes, sometimes just wrong ideas about God, about people, about life. And so Paul launches into this section here that I just want to kind of slow it down and just, you know, understand that what he's talking about here when he says, verse three, For though we live in the world, to live here, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Okay, notice, this is this is warfare language here. You don't talk about war, which is the word he uses in verse 3, and you don't talk about weapons, the word that he uses twice in verse 4, if you're not trying to describe some kind of a battle. And the battle that he's describing here is the battle that occurs in our head. Because he goes on to say, on the contrary, they have divine power, the weapons that we have, not the weapons of the world, he's talking about spiritual weapons, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, and he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Your mind, my mind, our thoughts, is a battleground, and the enemy works overtime to try to rip us off in our head. And this verse here is very important. I encourage you, underline this, memorize this, and remember it, because there's going to be times you wrestle with your thought life, times like, I don't know, um, every minute of every day. (laughs) Don't let up. Because the enemy isn't. And so what I want to do is just for the remaining 10 minutes that we have here, I want to also parallel this with Ephesians chapter 6, a very familiar passage to many of you. If you want to turn there, you can. It's just a few pages over to the right, because after 2 Corinthians, you have Galatians and Ephesians, and so you're right there at Ephesians chapter 6. Very familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of you. But this is one of these sections of Scripture where Paul talks a little bit more about this whole concept of what we call spiritual warfare. Now, I'm not going to make this an extensive study. Again, we only have 10 minutes left in our service. But I also don't want to rob our time of getting to Ephesians chapter 6, because we won't be too far away from Ephesians 6 as we continue to go through the Bible. But I just want to read the passage, and then I want to focus on what is it exactly that Paul means back in Second Corinthians 10, where he talks about we have different weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not worldly. But they have divine power for the pulling down and for the demolishing of strongholds. So what weapons, what is he talking about? What kind of weapons do we have, spiritually speaking? So in Ephesians chapter 6, there's a section between verses 10 to 18, where Paul talks about, again, this concept of spiritual warfare, that there's a real devil, otherwise known as Satan, Lucifer, and he is at odds with you and me, and he wants nothing more than to see you defeated, because Satan knows that he's going to hell, and he wants to take as many people with him. That, in a nutshell, is his mission, okay? And so he's going to do everything he can, and he knows that if he can start in your head, if he can get in your head, he can affect a lot of how you live, and your actions, and your behavior. And so Paul warns about this in this passage here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then in the following verses, he writes about the armor of a Roman soldier, typical of first century, okay? And so he says, verse 12, "'For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers.'" Now, these are spiritual terms. He's talking about demonic things, satanic things, against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, So he's not talking about earthly rulers, earthly authority. He's talking about there's demonic, spiritual, evil things that are happening in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realms, we cannot see. That's what he's referring to. And so he says in verse 13, Therefore... Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, notice not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth, buckle around your waist, emphasizes truth, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, righteousness, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Okay, just picture the devil just bombing you constantly. And so extinguish here all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. And by the way, the reason he says pray for all the saints is because we all are going through this. No one is exempt. No one is exempt. Now, just four quick things that he says from this passage, and I'm combining it also with 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The first thing here is that Satan is constantly scheming against us. That's what he says right here in Ephesians six eleven and 12. He's constantly scheming against us. He is relentless against us. That's why he says... Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. He is constantly scheming how to take advantage of us, how to test us, how to tempt us, how to get in our heads. And so number two, one of the areas he especially targets is our minds. He wants to do all he can to affect our thought life because he knows that if he can get in your head that he's won half the battle. And so that's why Paul urges us back there in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Some, I hear some Christians, they are under this misguided notion that as long as I don't act on it, I can think whatever I want. No. Your thought life is also something God hears and knows. And your thought life is either pleasing to him or displeasing. It is either honoring or dishonoring. It is either glorifying or it is sinful. And in addition to either all of that, if our thoughts are allowed to just run wild without us taking them captive, it can also then lead to behavior that is sinful. So we take captive every thought. I think it was Martin Luther who said, I can't control the birds flying over my head, but I can control them making a nest in my hair. The idea is, you know, I can't control if thoughts come into my head but I can control what happens to them at that point. Okay? I don't need to allow the thoughts to just make a nest in my head. I can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. One of the other things that Paul points out here in Ephesians 6, number three, is we must find our strength in the Lord and his power. You're not going to win this battle on your own. Don't think of really anything related to Christianity in terms of just more fortitude. If I just, you know, shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone kind of thing, then I'm, you and I desperately need the power of the Lord because we don't have the strength in ourselves to effectively deal with the onslaught of the enemy. So that's why he begins this passage in verse 10 by saying, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And number four... He tells us what those offensive weapons are. Now, much of the description here are the defensive armor of a Roman soldier. So he talks about, you know, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with the preparation for the gospel. But the offensive weapons he mentions, the sword. In verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, which, by the way, again, you've got to guard your mind. Put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, there in verse 17, which is what? The Word of God. He defines, he says, okay, I'm using this symbolism here of a Roman armor, of a Roman soldier and his armor. Let me tell you what I mean when I talk about the sword. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It is the offensive weapon of our faith. Remember every time when Jesus was being tempted by Satan during the 40 days in the wilderness when Jesus fasted, every time satan tried to tempt jesus jesus responded by quoting scripture it is the word of god that is the greatest offensive weapon that we have so in other words if you want to take captive every thought and make it obedient to christ you're going to have to saturate your mind with the word of god because it is the word of god then you know what does romans 12 talk about Be no longer conformed to the power of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we to renew our minds? We have to get a whole new concept of life and godliness and holiness and everything from the Word of God. So saturate your mind by spending time in the Word of God. You say, well, what's the best part? All of it just any of it just get into god's word because god will effectively do his good work in our hearts you know god's word will not return void but will accomplish the purposes for which it is said is what the prophet isaiah says so to the degree that we get our minds bathed in the word of god that will go a long way to helping us take captive every thought and making it obedient to christ and then on the heels of that in verse 18 here in ephesians 6 he says and pray and pray Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He emphasizes that word three times there in verse 18. Pray, pray, pray. Pray in the Spirit, does that mean... Pray in the gift of tongues. If God has given you that, fine. If God has not given you that, some interpret this simply to mean that the Spirit helps intercede for us. You know, with groanings that cannot be expressed. So, as Romans tells us, so, you know, whether you have that particular gift or not, just pray. Pray, 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 and allow God's Spirit to help intercede on your behalf. But use the Word of God and prayer as the offensive weapons to help take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, some of you, as we close our service, would probably say that your thought life is one of the most tormenting things, isn't it? And some of you have to deal constantly with not just tempting thoughts, sometimes very depressing thoughts, and very discouraging thoughts. And my encouragement to you is that, first of all, just a reminder that God loves you and God has a purpose and a plan for your life and the enemy wants you to believe the opposite. And part of the enemy's tactic is to get in your head. Please know that God's will for you and God's desire for you is life and the fruit of the Spirit which is his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his gentleness, and his self-control. And what we need is more of him.
0: Your new life. Living in unity with one another is never an easy task. Every member of the church is unique and filled with personality. And with that comes opinions. As you've learned from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, though, unity within the body of Christ is a must. You don't have to agree on every tiny detail, but on the basic tenets of faith. Members need to agree. Living in harmony does require humility and open communication and a willingness to follow the leadership God has placed over His church. We hope today's teaching on Cornerstone Connection has been encouraging to you. If you're in the area, we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday at 8.30, 10 or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia for a time of worship and Bible study. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our website also houses our archive of Pastor Gary's teachings through the Bible, as well as additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word. You can even download our mobile app to take Cornerstone Connection with you on the go. You'll find all this again at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of 2 Corinthians, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul, that you've got no place to go, but still you know, still you know. you're not a-